Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. So if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Bhatti. I am Yuval Dorfis Kurboy. And I am Brian Kotick. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings on musings of the arbitration world. And 1% of outrageous behavior? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, finally someone with a with a radio voice on this podcast. <laughs> Where in the world are you, Sadia and Brian? We're in London. Uh, we're in London in uh, the Gide offices again together. It's exciting. Where are you, Joel? I am in New York City. I'm in Brooklyn. So if, if you hear sirens or uh, you know sounds of homeless people fighting with rats, you know it's me. <laughs> Oh, that old sound. <laughs> oh my god, you have such a romantic view of, of New York, I can tell already. Oh, Brooklyn is very different than Manhattan, though. That's I'm sure true. your experience is very different. Yeah, if you hear a hipster fighting with a yes. homeless person hiding with a rat, then you're in Brooklyn. You know what I did just a few days ago? I walked a few blocks from where I'm currently uh, residing for the week that I'm here, and I walked up to the apartment where Luke Peterson used to live, the guy who founded IA Reporter, which is our oh. sponsor. And I uh, paid Sick my respect to, uh, to his apartment where, where IA Reporter was founded, and the first major IA Reporter pieces were, were uh, <laughs> read and published. <laughs> are you going to start an I Reporter tour? I was going to say, are you going to bring people over and this is where it all started? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please lay a flower. We should, on that note, with such a great bridge, I'm so happy with this. We should say that I Reporter is, of course, an online service focused on international investment law and our sponsor for the fourth season of the Arbitration Station. For more than 10 years, iReporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. And I do, quite often. And me too. Me too, me too, me too. <laughs> so you guys were traveling recently. You guys were hanging out without me. It got me quite jealous, I have to say. <laughs> yes. We I was in Vienna for a whole week, but Sally did a, like, a, a busy, important person thing and sh showed up. And it had in and out. Before it ended. Yeah, exactly. It's very true. I came in on a Tuesday. So we're talking about Vienna, of course, because we didn't say it. Right. So we were at the Ancetral meeting, uh, working group, um, working group three. And I got there on Tuesday evening and left on Thursday evening. But it was really nice because we had the opportunity to uh, record an interview together, Joel. So that was really cool, wasn't it? Yes, it was, it's a new experience to be uh, interviewing together with someone else. Fortunately, it was with, uh, with Julian Arado, um, as our listeners will soon hear too, who is a person who can, who can talk about anything to anyone in a 
funny and <laughs> relevant ways. We didn't have to do a lot of work. Uh, but it's I, I love this. That's the, the amazing thing with the Uncentral Working Group, at least since they started with the ISDS reform agenda, mm-hmm. that there are so many interesting people in the same room and you can just grab a hold of anyone and have a substantive and interesting dis- discussion uh, about basically anything investment law related. It's rare that you have that opportunity and it's great that it's for several days so you can stretch your legs a little bit. Yeah. I mean, are you planning of going, uh, moving forward as well? Because I think I'm definitely going to go. I was asked to go again. So I'm definitely going to go to the next session, which is also going to be in Vienna. Because usually they rotate between New York and Vienna. But I think the next one is also going to be in Vienna next year. Yeah, I don't know. But it's good to know that you'll be going. So uh, the podcast will will be covered. (laughs) Ever present. <laughs> Always. Always. What have you been doing, Ryan? I had a hearing on Monday. Actually, Sadia and I were both in Paris at the same time, though we did not see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a closing argument hearing that happened after a post-hearing brief. Oh, really? So it was a bit, it was definitely a lot to get in um, in one day. But it was at the ICSID hearing. I think they just redid those. Or maybe that was, that's DC. The hearing center yeah. in Paris? Oh. I think they did, or maybe they moved, or maybe Why it's was all it? the did same. Why was it look all shiny? It did. It looked really, really nice. Um, they had like a barista instead of having like coffee in the breakout rooms. They had like a full barista. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was really well done, and it's quite convenient to have an office and a place where you have a hearing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like the benefit of having a multi office firm is not having to print and then send. Yeah. Uh, but it was good. I, so it was a bit stressful. Um, but now we're on the other side. So now it's just on to. Christmas. And is it really over now? Because you had hearing after the I know, the could PhD. you imagine a post-hearing When is it brief? that they say it's <laughs> over? Can't speak anymore. I know. No, but that's, uh, this is what I don't, and I've I've griped about this before on the podcast about post-hearing briefs, and I know they're useful. Pause, 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 pause. Did you say PHB, Sadia? Yes, PHB. That's so it thing? was that, yeah. the post-hearing brief. I mean, the acronym, the, sh- the shorthand, say, that's post-hearing brief. You can say PHB. Always. Never. Yeah, I mean, Jules, where have you been living? <laughs> I'm not in a law firm. The D, that's much, much more substantive than a PhD. That's my excuse. What would you say? I was working on a PhD. That's, oh, that's PhD. Not knowing about PhD. <laughs> oh, excuse me, that I don't know about the PhD. I know about PhD. Yeah, if you're yeah. ever citing to the post-hearing brief, it's like PhD. Yeah, paragraph. PhD all the time. I'm like, yeah, PhD hearing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, PhD hearing is actually not a thing. That's why I'm, I'm right. confused about that one. But yeah, PhD is like the ultimate. What's CMC? CMC a, it's a conference. Uh, it's the scheduling conference before. Like the first post um, uh, yes, procedure order comes out. <laughs> yes, exactly. And someone was like, the CMC, the CMC. I was like, what is the CMC? Yeah, yeah. We all talk. Maybe we should do a thing on acronyms. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a funny one. Yeah, what are, so our other two topics before we get off on this tangent is um, I will be talking about double hatting, um, which everyone probably has heard about. It's been in the news with the ICJ. So we'll just kind of break it down and go through some empirical analysis that has been done. Um, and then for our happy fun time, speaking of acronyms, we'll be talking about fonts. I don't know if that was related, but it is now. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about fonts. What really pisses us off about fonts? Mm-hmm. This is the nerdiest topic I have ever heard. But mm. I can say that I have been dealing with our wedding invitations recently. Ah. And a fonts was probably the biggest point of contention. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, this is interesting. I'll hear more about this. 
Yeah, it all costs the same. I don't. We both don't really care. But then you get no. into the fact that like what looks more formal, what looks Downton it Abbey, matters. it matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. What's matter. readable? Uh, I look forward to this already. But before that, and before the double heading, it is uh, Sadia and I are talking to Julian Arado, who is uh, associate professor at Brooklyn Law School and a member of the Uncentral Working Group's Academic Forum, which is a bunch of academics. He will explain in the interview what they do. He has written or co-written a paper about uh, reflective loss or shareholder claims and investment arbitration, which is a very interesting topic that will be on the table uh, when the Uncentral states meet again, uh, I think in in January. So here's Julian. Yeah, but that you know, it adds it adds color. It's the UN experience. We have some <laughs> random Filipino. And the delegate of Philippines just walked in. How are you doing? Are you guys talking about reflective loss? As a matter of fact, yeah. Come to the right place. Yeah. We are probably also violating about four different UN rules by bringing coffee into this breakout room. <laughs> That's true. You shouldn't be doing that. And using their electricity. Yeah, exactly. Well, who knows? I'm I'm just a free agent. I can't really do anything about me. I love you always said that. I'm a free free man, free agent. Speaking of which, can you tell us about the academic forum and what it is? Uh, yeah, the so the academic forum is in a sense a forum of uh, free agents, uh, mostly free agents uh, who are working in international um, the, the disputes, uh, international investment disputes. Uh, it's attached in a way to the UNCTRAL process, but it is totally independent of it. So it's basically, you can think of it as a, as a group of experts, um, all of whom have permanent academic positions, most of whom are mostly academics, but some of whom are sort of double-heading or triple-heading in different ways, and we've been really rigorous about disclosing the various roles that the individuals have. Um, what we do is produce reports, produce papers, produce uh, academic work, which undergo pretty rigorous review processes internally to the academic forum. So it's usually you know, a group of three or four um, scholars who are keen on a particular topic, produce a report on that topic, um, and there's usually one drafter, and then that'll kind of go out to review on a first reading to, to the academic forum itself, maybe informally to some delegates if there's some interest. Uh, and then we put it out as a report. Uh, it's not produced by the academic forum. It's produced by the scholars uh, themselves, but with the sort of branding of the academic forum to reflect the review process. And then the states presumably get access to this because it's unofficially tied to Ancetral and there, there are side events during the, the negotiations and so on. Yeah, I mean, the goal is really to help the process. And so even the, the nature and content of our work is tied to the Uncetral process. So look, our first five papers, uh, our first nine papers matched the concerns identified by Uncetral. They were on consistency, on, uh, on, um, on third-party funding, right, on, on all of the concerns that have been noted, impartiality of arbitrators, um, Actually, those kind of came a little bit late in the day because we wrote these reports after the concerns were identified by Uncetral in the first uh, week. 
And so we've sort of taken a new posture uh, going forward to try to be proactive and produce papers on topics that are going to be considered. And so it might be useful uh, for the delegates here. So you say nine papers. So when was when did you really start your activity? And are you, um, um, you know, an observer in the working group three and group two or any other? No. Yeah. So so uh, two things. So one, the academic forum. I don't know if the academic forum is itself an observer at uh, working group three. I think it is although I'm not sure if it's currently sitting in that okay. post. Uh, but many of the members of the academic forum are either observers or even some delegates from states who are also themselves academics. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, Anna De Luca is a delegate from Italy, and she sits in the academic forum because she's also a professor of law mm -hmm. at Bocconi. Jamin Lee is a delegate from, from Korea, and he's also in the academic forum. And it's totally natural, right, because, of course, governments would want to rely on their scholars uh, for advice, Um, and, and we've been really good about making sure there's a hard divide between what you produce in your academic work, which is objective, and what kind of advice you give to your clients uh, in a public forum. And, and we disclose everything um, naturally. Uh, so most of us, I don't think, are sitting in other working groups. Okay. Uh, I sit I, here as an observer for the American Society of International Law, mm -hmm. um, but I, I only attend working group three. And the academic forum was started after the... Um, not in the very first session of Working Group 3 on investment reform, on uh, investor state dispute settlement reform, uh, but immediately thereafter. Uh, it, it was started uh, sort of by a, a rather large group uh, initially, but we sort of took, you know, there are growing pains with these sort of things. We took a couple of sessions to figure out, okay, what exactly do we need to disclose to be a um, colorable part of this process, but also one that can contribute something real? Um, and then also, what kinds of topics do we want to take on so that we're not sort of, you know, chasing the, the last debate, but sort of helping to facilitate the future debate? Um, and so I think we're really sort of just hitting the ground now, finding our footing in a really useful way. Uh, and the, the sort of recent side events have showed that they're, you know, better and better attended. The reports are better and better circulated. Um, and with, as, as with everything, you know, it's a process. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, now, now the states have also started finally to talk about substance this week. Things are kind of progressing ahead now, so I would imagine that's also a little bit of momentum now that there's, the frameworks are sort of set and we know what to expect and what to focus on. And you can also, as academics, work a little bit more strategically, seeing what might come up uh, compared to two years ago when it was still like a, a carte blanche and yeah. you really know what's going to be discussed. Yeah, I mean, that's helpful in two ways, right? I mean, on the one hand, we now know, okay, we have sort of nine topics of general interest, and so now we don't have to just sort of present nine papers in a one-hour session each time, you know, we want to get some attention at Uncentral. Now we can sort of say, okay, now is the time we're discussing shareholder claims, or now it's third-party funding. So we're just going to present that paper, and we can have a more substantial debate about it. It doesn't necessarily have to be the one author. It can be an author and some commentators. It can be a critical debate. You know, you just have more breathing room to actually contribute in a useful way. And, and it's not our goal to just say to those uh, delegates of, of Working Group 3, here's the best approach. You should follow it. They're the ones who are paid to do that. That's beyond our pay grade. Uh, our goal is to sort of give them you know, the tools based on our expertise to see all sides of these issues, to see where hidden problems might lie, to provide technical but also conceptual and scholarly expertise, empirical data which might not be so apparent, mm -hmm. uh, and just to do what we can to facilitate the, pro the process but also avoid, um, you know, avoid the situation where the solutions adopted just create unintended consequences that could have been avoided with a broader-based discussion. 
Uh, so that's that's sort of really where we're, we're pushing our focus. So that's the one. On the one hand, we now know what the topics are going to be each week, and so that helps us to plan. On the other hand, we know that we're in the substance phase now, right? This is sort of phase one of phase three, or I don't know exactly how to phrase this in the Uncetral language anymore. It's getting a little bit complicated. <laughs> uh, but we're at the reform stage. We're down to brass tacks. We're doing substantive reform. And so now we know that when we produce a paper for the academic forum, it's not just useful to say, here are some concerns, go deal with them. Now we're at the point where we should start saying, look, here are different ways that one could address these concerns, that the, the delegates of UNCITRAL can address the concerns they've identified. We're not telling you what the best one is necessarily, but we are going to sort of focus on what the trade-offs might be and what the imperfect alternatives might be, to use the, the term from uh, Sergio Puig and, and Greg Schaefer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really a helpful frame for thinking about it from their, their article in the American Journal of International Law recently, that there are no silver bullets here. There are no perfect solutions. We're in an imperfect world. We're engaged in trying to figure out you know, what the best way to thread these needles are and every state has different priorities and when it comes to the plenary sessions you know it's kind of hard to tease out in nuanced trade-offs mm-hmm. uh, and economic analysis of the law is not really the best <laughs> forum for it so you know in shifting gears we're not only focusing on the topics of the day but also trying to think through what we can offer in terms of technical assistance like that right and trade-offs yeah. and one of those topics where, where I think it, it's a good illustration of what you just said that where there's no real good perfect solution is the one that you've co-written uh, is, is it your first paper second, second as, as part of the academic forum yeah. we were one on uh, on consistency before right 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 about uh, shareholder claims and reflective laws yeah. the, the 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 Barcelona traction problem as we teach in, in international law um, it, is that on the table no yes. it is it for, will be discussed not for January but for the following Uh, session, so it's already out, uh, way ahead of the the Uncetral discussion. The the what's wait, what's ahead? The paper is already out before it's being discussed in the plenary. Yes. Yeah. So the states will be able to read and digest and yes. discuss. Well, hopefully, right? <laughs> That's what we all hope as academics. And have any states reacted to um, that paper yet, or is just too fresh or on that topic? Have any states uh, put down any position papers? Yeah, so states have put down... So so the shareholder reflective loss problem uh, has been kind of lur- lurking in the background all of this time, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was not identified initially as explicitly one of the sort of nine uh, top-line concerns, right? The top-line concerns were, were inconsistency and incoherence in arbitration, a correctness in decisions, impartiality and independence of arbitration, multiple issues. claims, right? But all of those concerns, not all of them, but very, very many of them are uh, not only um, intensified, but in some cases even produced by the shareholder claims problem. So one of the concerns is a lack of a framework to deal with multiple claims, right? Another one is dispute prevention. Another one is inconsistent awards. Part of the reason we have those problems is because we have a proliferation of claims arising out of the same events because not only can a company bring a suit against a state, but in many cases also its shareholders, and in many cases even their shareholders and their shareholders yeah. and their shareholders <laughs> ad infinitum, right? So that produces the, the material conditions for inconsistent awards, Right? That produces the problem of multiple claims or multiple bites at the apple mm-hmm. for one economic interest to continue to attack the interests of a state. And putting aside the question of whether or not the state or the investor is in the right or in the wrong in terms of the actual dispute, this is neither efficient nor particularly fair way to resolve these disputes. So it's been in the background. States have thought about this in some of their submissions on all of these different areas in disparate ways. Um, but it's kind of only last time 
uh, in New York, in what is it, the 37th session in New York, Argentina specifically pulled these threads together and asked the Secretariat to produce a report on uh, shareholder claims to say, look, look, this might be its own sort of cross-cutting harm. And it's, it's been getting some place since then. So finally, now we're at brass tacks, right? There's uh, on July 15th of this year, there was a deadline for states to start making submissions on what they thought reform proposals ought to look like. And a few of them mentioned shareholder reflective loss by name. Uh, South Africa mentioned it by name. And particularly importantly, uh, this sort of block of uh, states um, in, a, in a kind of co-authored paper, Japan, Peru, Mexico, uh, Chile, and Israel. Yeah, five states. Uh, produced a paper saying one of the major reform options we should look at is a multilateral convention to resolve certain procedural problems, and one of those is shareholder reflective loss. And they specifically use the economic conception of shareholder reflective loss, not just the sort of uh, colloquial expression of shareholder claims. And so in their view, like, this is one of the things which we can really systematize and reduce a lot of the harms. Um, because you, you make a point in the paper that it's, you know, neither in domestic corporate law nor in general international law, really anywhere else do we allow shareholders as opposed to, to the legal entity, the incorporated entity, to bring claims. It's, it, it's something we don't really, we just take it for granted that uh, in investment law we have such wide definitions of investment and investors so that you can basically, anyone can bring a claim under the first and second generations of, of investment treaties at least. I, I realize you are in no position, given what you just said about the, the role of the academics here, to give recommendations. But what, what are some of the potential non-silver bullet solutions to address this? So, uh, first of all, let me just be clear. I'm happy to recommend solutions in my personal <laughs> capacity. I'll do that all day, right? Uh, but not speaking on behalf of the academic forum, which doesn't really take that sort of positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are solutions, and it's really important to clarify one thing up front that no corporate law in the world, nor any other international jurisdiction, allows shareholder claims for harms to the company, right? That's indirect claims or reflective loss claims. Shareholders may bring claims for direct harm if, for example, their voting rights in the shares or their right to a dividend were taken away. That would be a harm to the shareholder based on the rights they have coming from their share, rights they haven't given up. Right. right? So fine, you can bring those sorts of claims. Those don't really come up that much and they don't involve very high dollar amounts, but fine. Uh, the argument has been that reflective loss claims are possible where there's a harm to a third party. There's a, there's a third party harm from a state to the company that diminishes the share value of the investor and allows the investor to, as 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 a diminishes the share value of the investor and qua shareholder allows the investor to bring a suit under ISDS against the state mm-hmm. to recover for that harm. So that already is a problem from domestic corporate law perspective. Mm-hmm. But this has mostly been bootstrapped one step even further. Most investors who are shareholders don't claim for diminution in share value as measured under the New York Stock Exchange or something like that. They say, look, I'm a shareholder. I own a certain proportion of the company. There's been a harm to the company. That harm is worth a certain dollar amount. I'm suing for my proportion to that. So that's doubly problematic from the perspective of domestic corporate law. Why? Because the deal with corporations is that you get all of these advantages of centralization by giving up your rights to speak for the company. Right. Except in one circumstance where there's a conflict of interest that is so extreme that you can bring a derivative suit on the company's behalf. But then you're only stepping into the shoes of management. Any money that you win goes to the company, gets paid out to creditors before you, 
and gets paid out to other shareholders at the same time as you get paid out, right? So the problem with the ISDS situation is that it allows shareholders to do an end run around other creditors, to do an end run around other shareholders, uh, and potentially to, in a situation where there's parents and subsidiaries, harass the state with multiple claims. Uh, It creates the potential for double recovery, which hasn't really happened yet in the cases. There hasn't been any good examples of double recovery, but that's just contingent luck, right? If a shareholder wins a claim first, and then the company brings a claim on behalf of a company where there is multiple shareholders and creditors. Yeah, under a different treaty or different treaties, yeah, right. maybe. Or different. even under the same one. Yeah. Yeah. What a tribunal can't say to the company, you've been made whole, right? One shareholder was made whole. So then let's say this, the, the shareholder wins first, the company wins second. Then there's no way to avoid double recovery. Mm-hmm. Because imagine the situation where the tribunal says, okay, well, we're going to give you a pro rata award. Your 15% shareholder has already gotten full recovery. So we're going to give you recovery, the company, for uh, 85%. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that you haven't kicked the shareholder out of the company. So that shareholder will recover its 15% of the 85%. Yes. Right. And so there will be double recovery. It will either be at the expense of the state or it will be expense at the expense of the other stakeholders in the company. And there's just no way to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a pretty big problem. Mm-hmm. Not hearing any solutions, Julian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I can't talk about the solutions until I've got right. the problem on the table. Fair enough. Can't give somebody a microphone and expect them not to use it. Academic especially. Uh, yeah. So solutions. It's important to get that stuff out because the solutions are contained in how domestic law usually handles this. And to to my mind, the goal ought to be to facilitate company claims rather than shareholder claims. So what's the one arguable benefit of allowing shareholder claims? There's a nationality problem with investment treaties, which is that you invest in a company, often it'll be a local company, often the host state will require you to invest in a local company. That company won't have jurisdiction under an investment treaty Mm -hmm. because these are diagonal treaties where only the foreign shareholders, right? right? So the foreign nationals get jurisdiction. So if you have to invest through a local company, how does that local company get recompensed through investment treaties? Mm -hmm. If you don't have a solution to that, then by simply requiring investment through a local company, you can completely avoid the protections of the investment treaty. There are two solutions out there in treaties that we already have. One solution is the NAFTA-style solution. NAFTA has two provisions on uh, investor claims. Article 116 allows a shareholder to bring a claim of some sort. It's not clear what kind of claim. Article 117 allows a shareholder allows the company to bring a claim. It allows the shareholder to bring a claim on behalf of the company, right? So you can what the NAFTA parties have argued is that Article 116 is for shareholder direct loss claims. If a shareholder loses, it uh, has direct harm. It can bring a claim itself. 117 says where the harm is to the company, a shareholder can bring a claim on behalf of the company mm-hmm. in a derivative action. Yeah. And any recovery goes to the firm, and the shareholder is made whole because they have shares, shares in the yeah. firm. But no creditors are jumped. No other shareholders are jumped. The, the state only is subject to one type of claim. Mm-hmm. Now, it hasn't always worked in the NAFTA because in some tribunals have found that Article 116, the shareholder one, is broad enough to allow reflective loss. That's sort of changing, and the Bill Con Awards decided quite clearly that that is not how to interpret those provisions correctly. But let's put that question of interpretation to the side. It's clear that there's a risk in sort of just implicitly saying that there's shareholder claims and there's company claims having both works. I would say the solution going forward is to just be clearer and to say there is exclusive company recovery for harm to the company and shareholders can bring action for direct claim, direct loss, but only direct loss. Mm -hmm. That's solution one. Solution, so we can call that the derivative claims solution. Solution two is the constructive nationality solution. 
There are some investment treaties that say, for the purposes of ISDS, if a local company is significantly or majority owned by a foreign shareholder that would be covered by the treaty, mm-hmm. then that company can itself bring suit as a constructive foreign national, mm-hmm. right? The difference between these two is in the NAFTA situation, it's the shareholder who invokes on behalf of the company, like a derivative action. In the constructive nationality uh, case, it's still the local management that has control. Right. And they get some sort of you know, fictional right almost. We we assume that they are foreign for the purpose exactly. of the jurisdiction. Yeah. Exactly. And there are trade-offs there, right? I mean, if you were worried as a state in uh, negotiating this treaty is the ability of the local company to actually exercise that control, then you might be more uh, interested in a derivative action type mm-hmm. of regime. If you're not so worried about that, constructive nationality might work. But these things only work if you exclude shareholder reflective loss too, because what shareholder would have an incentive to go through this complex company recovery regime when they can just do an end run around the process on their own? Mm-hmm. And how would you do that? How would you exclude just in a separate provision explicitly saying that no derivative loss claims are allowed? Yeah, I think you need to have a provision that covers shareholders for direct loss anyway, mm. right? Because they're, what's the borderline case is total expropriation of the firm mm-hmm. right? or destruction of the firm. So you're a shareholder in a local company and that firm is just completely destroyed. They're shut down. The army is sent in in this hypothetical uh, and the shareholder is now unable to either act on behalf of the company because there is no company. The shareholder can't expect management of the company to act on their behalf because there is no company. In that situation, yeah, probably they should be able to bring a claim for recovery in proportion to what their shares were, probably measured in terms of proportion of the harm, Mm -hmm. right? That's the real borderline case. So I think if you don't have that, you lose a lot of the potential upside of these treaties. So you need a clause that says shareholders can bring direct claims. You might even clarify that that includes total expropriation. Depends on how how much complexity you want to introduce into the treaty. And I'm acting like this is easy, but it's not. Um, And why just expropriation? Because that's the one situation where management no longer exists, Mm -hmm. right? Normally, when you have shares in a company, you are giving up your right to speak for the firm Mm -hmm. to management. That's the trade-off, right? You get all these benefits from the centralization of capital because management can speak for the firm. That's the whole conception of the corporation from the initial inception of the corporation, of the business corporation. And... In the case of expropriation, there is no management, mm-hmm. right? So we might ask whether it's worth extending this idea a little bit where management is compromised, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't mean extending it to FET claims or to MFN claims or national treatment claims. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't go kind of treaty claim by treaty claim. What we might do is to say, look, there's here are the situations where one can bring a claim. If I'm designing a clause, mm-hmm. right? Take the model of NAFTA 116 and 117. Article 117 says... A shareholder may bring a, uh, a claim on behalf of the company uh, in a derivative action. And Article 116 says a shareholder may bring a claim uh, to enforce their direct rights in cases where there has been direct harm, which include um, you know, un- undermining the uh, right to vote, undermining um, things like uh, the right to dividends, uh, and including total expropriation. So that, I think, would solve a lot of the problems If we want it to be one step more nuanced, one could add to the derivative clause, shareholders may bring derivative action for direct harm to the firm um, and may bring derivative action where uh, management is, is, is compromised in some way. So one could sort of take a page from domestic law and, and allow derivative action where there's some lack of faith that 
management would actually be able to um, bring a claim on behalf of the company. So, for example, uh, in a situation where the local management might not be appointed by the controlling uh, the controlling shareholder because of some agreement with a, the um, joint venture, right? You know, one could be kind of creative about how how you figure this out, but. Uh, I realized that the way that I just framed that potential model clause is really complex and there's a huge cost to too much complexity mm-hmm. in this sort of thing because, you know, you think you're solving one problem and then 75 more problems come up. Yeah, and great lawyers will be able to exploit that exactly. further down the line. Right, as is what happened with this shareholder stuff. Yeah, in the, the first place. place. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so I would say the, the goals are to say, for the most part, only the company can bring claims. Right. Couple of limited exceptions where the company either wouldn't have the requisite nationality or where the company might be compromised in mm-hmm. some way. But in all of those cases, the recovery should go directly to the firm. And the only exception to that is where the company no longer exists. And that's to avoid recovery going uh, to the wrong place, right? Mm-hmm. To the shareholder instead of other shareholders who would have parity or other uh, creditors who would expect priority. Very good elevator pitch summary, I think. Where, where can we find this? And and maybe also the other papers published by the members of the Academic Forum? Is there a, a central place to go? Yeah, so there's a central webpage uh, with a link, which I can tell you, or I can maybe we can, yeah, we can, we can, we can include it in the description. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we've now have a shortened link because we're technologically savvy. Wow. So uh, yeah, we're really good. <laughs> we're, we're on the cutting edge with the kids. Um But there's a link with all the papers that are up there, uh, and there's also some very good work on shareholder claims being done by right. the OECD yeah. uh, and by others. And so this is a kind of you know up and coming issue. And uh, I can promise a further report on uh, reform options coming out on shareholder claims uh, before the New York session, hopefully. Very good. Thank you so much, Julian. Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having. Me. Let's go back inside and uh, listen to the state allegations. Great. <laughs> All right, everyone, put on your hats. How many hats are you wearing today? Ooh. Did you get it? Did you get the pun? <laughs> That's not a pun. That's barely uh, a joke. I know, it's barely a joke. I, are you guys going to vote me off? Is it I find it funny, Jewel. I find it funny. I'm laughing at it. You want to put you in the same room and you have to. And you're a cynic, so shh. Um, <laughs> double hatting, what is it? Uh, double hatting is basically, a, to a, a very general extent, when one person is wearing two different hats. Get it? So then what it, the type of hats that they wear could be that they wear a hat as counsel, where either simultaneously, subsequently, or on a different plane uh, serve as arbitrator. But we can even expand that definition to say someone working as a legal expert is also working as an arbitrator, someone working as a witness, uh, also working as counsel. Um, there's a lot of times where one person can be wearing two different hats. And although this may arise quite naturally, considering the size of the world that we are working in, um, they it basically there's been a critique on this type of double hatting, mostly related to this legitimacy crisis. I would say, although the problem has been kind of lingering for a long time, it's been a bit ignored until recently because of the strong backlash um, arbitration and specifically investment arbitration has had. Um, and those main critiques that we can look at are one that all arbitrators are stale male and pale, meaning that everyone is just appointing themselves and they all happen to be old white men. The second one is the lack of transparency. So we don't know why these arbitrators are getting picked, um, that they are counsel, they're usually friends with each other. 
Um, no one knows why the arbitration world is uh, moving in the direction it's moving. There's excessive collegiality. Um, I think we've all been in the room where someone has suggested an appointee of an arbitrator because mainly for the reasons, quote, he is my friend or I know him very well. Um, and that could also be in terms of hiring an expert as well. And, and not only legal experts, I said legal experts, but also financial experts. If you guys have looked at the repeat performers in um, damages experts, you would also be quite um, excited or concerned to see the results. Um, and then finally, and most importantly, is the conflict of interest um, that can arise as a result, whether it's an issue conflict or a direct conflict um, or, you know, to people that have worked together at the same law firm or chambers, you know, the IBA rules of conflicts of interest um, mm -hmm. arise. But also on the fact that, you know, you make money with these appointments and you make money as counsel. And so there's a bit of a conflict of interest and in fees, I would say. Um, you don't want to take money away from your friend and you want to give money to some of your friends. And that's basically what would be happening. Um, so those are, those are the, I would say, the four main critiques that you face with this legitimacy well, crisis that intersects with the issue of double hatting. We should mention here because we have been in, in Vienna and following the Unstall Working Group, I think that the it is clear that the states, by and large, I think, there's a consensus, it seems, that this is a problem. Then what to do about it is a different thing. But if when listening to the submissions, double hatting is often mentioned and it's even in the in the reports now that it is a concern that needs to be reformed and they are currently working on some sort of code of conduct for arbitrators and i get the sense although you should not guess or you should not try to anticipate what states will do but i think this will be addressed one way or the other in whatever comes out when it comes to a code of conduct for arbitrators so it's not just abstract concerns it's something that is actually in the original working group has been agreed upon that this must be addressed and, yes and regarding in i'm just you know specifying in the world of investment arbitration, these discussions are taking place right. Good point. because they always make a difference with commercial arbitration, which is something we can discuss. Yes. Sometimes it's hard to understand why. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, to, to, to jump off this Unstral point, the, this, is not, this isn't an old issue. Uh, I pulled up the Secretariat's note from the uh, Working Group 3 from Vienna in 2018, so almost a year ago. And that was at the 35th session, and there was agreement um, this is a quote from the note. There was a general agreement that this practice, often termed double hatting or role confusion, raised concern to the extent that it created a potential or actual conflict of interest. Um, and they heard from a bunch of states that had problems with that. On the other hand, arguments raised in the working group in favor of permitting the practice include the relatively small pool of ISDS arbitrators, such that prohibiting double hatting would undermine the quality and rigor of decision makers in the system. So that that is kind of the counterbalance to these um, legitimacy concerns um, that basically you're taking away the only people that know what what's happening in arbitration which I would um, strongly beg to differ um, <laughs> and then I'll get when I at the end of the segment I'll talk about some reforms and I'll bring up some reforms that were raised um, in that working group um, but what I want to do first, um, and thank you, Sadi, for pointing me to this article, is that the University of Oslo had three authors, Malcolm Langford, Daniel Ben, and Runer Lai um, from the University of Oslo, that wrote a long empirical analysis of double-hatting. Um, and they, it's an article called Revolving Door in International Investment Arbitration. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. But they basically analyzed... Actually, and we should say they're all uh, on the academic forum as well. So they're hanging around the trial process, similar to Julian. These three individuals? Yeah. Oh, amazing. 
I think Malcolm is even the head of the academic forum or whatever the formal title is. Uh huh. Conv- um, convening professor. <laughs> <laughs> academic um, But they did a great, I mean, they did a great uh, amount of research. It was 1,039 cases with a database with 138 variables. Um, So they're known cases for uh, treaty-based arbitration. And they did across institutions, um, UNCITRAL arbitrations. And what they did is they mapped the actors in arbitration by role. So they looked to arbitrators, um, individuals appointed as arbitrator, individuals appointed as counsel, the most appointed counsel, um, individuals appointed as experts, witnesses, um, and and what they call power brokers, which is an intersection of all these roles. So they ranked these roles individually, then did like a mapping of how they intersect, and then named certain people power brokers, and mm-hmm. then they figured out the top power brokers and how they intersect with um, the with like all of the rankings combined and I'll get to it, but basically what they did, they, they created a double hatting index. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we get to who is the biggest, who has the biggest double hat of, <laughs> of all. Um, so we can start with table one, which I will talk about the role of the arbitrator. So what do you guys think is the, don't look Sandy, uh, the top, give me, let's try to get the top five most appointed arbitrators. In investment arbitration. An oh, investment that's, arbitration. That's easy, I think. I, I think we have ladies at the top, actually. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> so I would say for sure, Gabrielle Kaufman Collar and Stan are one Correct. of the top ones. I would say possibly Charles Bauer. Correct. You're good at this ranking game. <laughs> I looked at it, I think. At oh, the that's point true. Where, um, but they're quite obvious, I guess. Yeah, I think. Um, who else? Who else? I'm sure Jude knows. Uh, who else is also? Important? When what, what times are we looking at? How how far all time? So? Uh, yeah, of all total cases. So mm. no, they've yeah of all time. Oh. Well, basically, you have Yves Fortier and you have yeah. um, Vicuña. Vicuña, oh. right? And Fandenberg must be up the two. He was right after Vicuña, right. correct? Okay. Um, so they so that's how they started their legal analysis was to go through that, and then they mapped how these people all sit. Um, on panels together. Wow, so you have like, like a spider web. You can't see it because it's a podcast, but it's like a beautiful graph and it looks like a spider web. It looks like LA traffic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you have like, you have Stern and Kaufman Kohler just sitting right next to each other and very big. And then you have Gaillard, Crawford, Price lingering around. You have Burke Stiegel, Alexandrov ming- lingering around. Joel, I don't see your name anywhere. <laughs> we're there. We're just, uh, yeah. We're right. Just, we're the know, small yeah. ones. Yeah. There. I'm, I'm somewhere in the trunk of uh, Beckstiegel's car, probably. <laughs> Maybe I need to get a new printer and then I'll see your face. <laughs> um, and then, so then what they went on to next was legal counsel. So you have these people, um, not necessarily people, I guess basically the heads of arbitration or people that have been lead counsel on certain cases. Um, so who do you think sits at the top of these? So kind of like the, the big names in private practice that are mm-hmm. probably getting the most cases. It's not government lawyers, because I guess the, like people working for the Canadian or the American government, or the Mexican government. There wouldn't. are actually government lawyers in here, but we can take them out, because I'm sure you don't know of Osvaldo Guglielmino. <laughs> Argentina. Argentina, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Angelina Abona. 
but the rest are firms. Okay. Firms. Gayard at the top. He's number four. Mm. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. You don't pronounce the D. <laughs> <laughs> Let me break it out to you. French. <laughs> Emmanuel Gaillard. Gaillard. <laughs> Swallowed the D, Joel. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, is uh, Pierre Meyer one of those as well? Uh, really. No. I but this mm-hmm. is a bit of this is an older article, so okay. maybe they've got Paulson. John Paulson's got to be in top. Oh, Paulson's up there, number seven. Um, yeah, he's up there. Uh, Funny enough, our friend Todd Weiler, because his his uh, work with Canada. Oh, oh right. No, 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 not with Canada. Against Canada, I think he only yeah. has equipment uh, cases. But he is Canadian. Yeah. Uh, number one is Stanimir Alexandrov, and then Nigel oh. Black at Freshfield. Oh, Nigel. Uh, Okay, so now we have, but you haven't heard a lot of crossover. You have Hamid Garavi, uh, Doak Bishop, mm-hmm. Robert Volterra, Gene Kalicki. You have like these names coming up quite often, but n- not necessarily a lot of crossover yet. Um, the next one that they looked at was the role of the expert. Um, and I, Brent Kazmarek, I don't know if you've heard that name floating around. Um, yes, he, in the back of hearing, right? He was the expert in the Vattenfall hearing, and any time, if you look at his CV, it's just quite incredible how his name has come up so much. Um, Dolzer is up there. Mm-hmm. Schroyer is obviously up there. Mm-hmm. Um, Crawford is up there. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel, I don't see your name on this one. <laughs> <laughs> soon, soon, Joel, soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then they, they ranked all the other actors, but the most interesting thing is this double-heading index, and it's calculated as follows. If a person in a given year is involved only as either arbitrator or legal counsel, i.e. only wearing one hat, the individual is not assigned any points. If, however, he or she is involved with a minimum of two investment arbitration cases in a minimum of two different roles, then a yearly score of two is assigned to the individual for a given year. It does not intends to dis- it does not attempt to describe the intensity of the double hatting within the calendar year, and hence the maximum score an in- individual can receive in a year is two. Cases are included in the evaluation from their constitution date and until they are either discontinued, settled, or finally resolved through decision of form of award. So, can I ask you this as an asterisk here? This list has to be basically all male, the double hatters, because from the arbitrator list there were only two women. Stern and Kaufman Kohler, and neither of them is acting as counsel, so there can't be any. Dot, well, maybe they maybe they could, but I, I'm guessing, or I'm asking you, I guess, are there any women on the top double heading list? There are not <laughs> any women, which would go to the first critique of being stale, pale, and male. And guess what? They are mostly white, depending on how you define white. Maybe <laughs> other as well. <laughs> uh, any any guesses on the top four? I, I know one for sure, uh, so I, not because I'm cheating, but because Kai Hobier is is uh, correct. Right. Number four, he's number four on the list. Number four on the list. So mm-hmm. wait, so can you say that again? And what is this list again? So the- this list is any person in a given year is involved as arbitrator and legal counsel. They get two points. Okay. And this is from, you know, over yeah their whole career, I guess. Okay. Um, so the max you can get in one year is two points. Is two points. I would mm. still put Gay there. Yeah, he's, he's number one. Oh right. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Um, One more guess for the for a top four. Mm, what about Crawford? Correct, a, number three. So before, yeah. well done, and well. Paulson, number two. Yeah, Paulson. And Stanimir, I guess, Alexandrov. If he was so high up as counsel, now he doesn't do counsel work, he does arbitrator work. He must be up there yeah. somewhere. He is like number 10. Robert Voltaire is up there, Zachary Douglas, Doak Bishop, Eduardo Silva Romero, Toby Landau, mm-hmm. Vaiho Heiskinen, representing the, uh, the Nordics there. Um, yeah, so that's that is uh, what they found. And uh, so clearly there's there's a lot of intersection and there's been a lot of backlash from that. And I would say that from what I had read, Philip Sands is someone who's kind of leading the charge in this. Um, and he often references the Gaillard uh, it, uh, issue that came up where he sat as arbitrator in the Telcom Malaysia Vigana case, but simultaneously was uh, counsel in the RFCC versus Morocco annulment. Um, and although you don't see any overlap there. There were actually similar issues being discussed um, on, on those two cases. And so he was challenged. Um, so, you know, and this is what Philip Sands is saying, that basically in the same day, you could argue two sides of the same coin. And is that really going to like, you know, help the legitimacy concerns of investment arbitration? Although we as lawyers kind of don't see too much harm in that. It's your job to represent your client zealously. Um, there could be, you know, if you're really deep into a case and trying to you know, advocate for your client. It could be, and then at the same time, be a decision maker who's partial, impartial, and independent. There could be um, some issues there. And if you look to the, you know, the IBA guidelines on the conflict of interest, it's the appearance of bias that you can mm-hmm. challenge on. Yes, um, exactly. So you know that it is quite low. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what this article actually said at the end is actually double hatting is decreasing. Um, I don't know if it has to do. I think times are changing. I think. There used to be an inner circle of big names, and now I think it's quite diverse, uh, probably because institutions have made a bigger push to include more people into this pool. But I just think people would become more sophisticated. It's not like if you had a public law issue, you would consult one of 10 people that know about it, because now you have more people that know about it. I don't know. As I remember the article, I don't know if I am now rephrasing it, but if so, let, let me say that it's my argument, if, if it's not the, the article's argument. Uh, because mm-hmm. it's a good one, and that is that uh, there are so few people on this double-heading index list that we just gave, that if they all ceased double-heading tomorrow, which mm-hmm. Philip Sanz has, for example, he sounds very uh, publicly said that mm-hmm. he would stop double-heading. If, if like the top 10 people on this list that we, you just gave us also did that, double-heading would basically go away. Like Very few individuals do a lot of both counsel and arbitrator work, and they make up a, a very large part of the, the double-heading phenomenon. If they would stop, basically, this whole critique would go away. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, clearly there's a lot of private practice people that are serving as arbitrator. It's just usually the main pool of people that they pick from. But I think what this article doesn't pick up is, is the intensity of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you're looking at these big names, and they may be working at a firm and are counsel on a couple of cases, but they're taking 10 arbitrator appointments a year. Right. So it's really, like, that issue conflict and the real reason why double hatting is scary for some people is more so when you're doing so much of it, I feel. Well, I have two things that are on my mind. One is I have seen that specifically with the issue of intra-UBIT since ACMEA, for example, right. um, a lot of arbitrators had either um, you know resigned or um, you know some counsel um, lawyers who are counsel on these cases have refused to accept, you know, appointment as arbitrators. Mm-hmm. So they're picking, 
you know, one or the other. So there's this acceptance that maybe on certain topics, there's absolutely no possibility of double heading or you should right. do so. Right? right. And I think that more so than I have seen in the past, which is interesting because why, you know, for that specific issue and not for others. Right. Right. Um, the second thing I have seen, and I'm sure, you know, you might talk about it a little bit more, but more specifically with respect to something I have seen closely is uh, France called for applications to sit on their, you know, exit panel thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in their in their um, application call uh, call for applications, they specifically said that they will not tolerate uh, double hatting. So if you are on that list, ah. then you can't uh, now act as counsel for investment arbitration cases. Yes. Uh, which is interesting, yeah. you know, because it it just it's it's a position that makes clear, yeah, um, that they don't tolerate double heading anymore. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I I did not have that on there, but it does go mm -hmm. to something similar with which which is what the ICJ did, um, which is basically saying mm -hmm. that they are not going to allow double heading. Um, you have you know, but the funny thing is, is you don't. It's hard for a lawyer or someone working in private practice to just say, at this point, I'm now giving up all private practice and I'm gonna sit as arbitrator. Because I think the transition from private practice to arbitrator needs to be a long transition in yeah. order to get garner more appointments and to mm -hmm. become more senior. This one article I found <laughs> analyzed the economic incentives for ICJ judges to double hat because they make in a salary 173,000 US dollars a year. Um, versus if you are appointed as an arbitrator in ICSID, you make $3,000 a day. Um, so if you have a, you know, one or two ICSID cases, um, you could make up, but I mean, you know, no one's going to be rich off being an arbitrator. No one's going to be rich off being an ICJ judge. So you're going to have to supplement your income if you want that house in Zermatt, right? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so the ICJ has, you know, said that their full-time judges um, could not sit as arbitrator. And there's a lot of, there was a lot of overlap. If you look at um, James Crawford, if you look at um, Greenwood, Simba. Greenwood, Yusuf, um, these type of names that keep coming up in especially exit arbitration, um, that, yeah, that this is just what's been happening. And there's a lot of even pending cases that um, these arbitrators, that these judges are still sitting on. So it's not fully resolved in the ICJ context. But the ICJ, I think, is extremely sensitive as far as issue conflict, because if you look at, for example, the Iranian assets cases where they were seeking uh, judgments on breaches of ISDS provisions of certain states, and then if, an, if a judge is deciding on these breaches and then later sits in an annulment committee or um, as counsel or as arbitrator in an investment arbitration involving one of these states, well, they've already decided as a judge that they've breached the ISDS provision. So, you know, what are you going to, how can you then be really impartial if you've already decided something in the same way? Um, the Dutch model BIT, this famous, like, innovative BIT, clearly, and CETA as well has... Um, said that they an arbitrator cannot uh, have acted as counsel to a disputing party in the previous five years. Um, and even CETA goes even further and includes experts in that. So you could not have said as expert in um, the past five years. So The past five years. Five years. Mm. Um, so the suggested reforms are self-regulation. As you said, you step down. Um, you have the IBA rules and guidelines, and you have the tr uncontrolled transparency rules, uh, Article 2011. But what 
one article said, and I can't remember where it was, but it said that we just need to start objecting more. <laughs> I was like, a way to reform is to start making it an issue to say that this person's double-hatting and that you don't want them. I mean, clearly you need to have grounds, but um, yeah, we need to start objecting more. That's mm-hmm. what someone said. But the thing is, I mean, and, and you mentioned it at the, at the beginning of the presentation that you didn't think it was true that if we do prohibit double-heading that it is significantly gonna you know have an impact on the pool of arbitrators out there and Jewel you said that it's not gonna make an impact because there are very little people who are actually double-heading today but if you look at the list of arbitrators who are you know we started with that the, the, the arbitrators who get the most appointment how old are these arbitrators right yeah. they're also from a certain generation so if yeah. you're thinking about the retirement next, age basically yeah retirement age who's going to take over i mean of course jewel you are but yeah, what I, mean <laughs> yeah is, I love this it's, it's just it's <laughs> way to our to <laughs> academics away from practitioners so perfect it's only <laughs> going to be academics then is that what we're looking at i mean isn't there a value in arbitrators having been in private practice before i mean are we are we just comp- do, do no. we do we all think that? No. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I disagree. Yeah. I, think, I think that all of the, you know, obviously there are really great counterexamples there because, you know, Brigitte Stern and Gabriel Kaufmann-Killer are, you know, exclusively acting as arbitrators today and, and less so as, I mean, Brigitte Stern was a professor. Gabriel Kaufmann-Killer has never been, has she been counsel before? A lot of investment arbitration proceedings. Um, I'm not even sure. I mean, I, but what I mean is, is for our next generation of lawyers who are doing investment arbitration, I think there is a lot of value in having practiced those cases and thinking that you can possibly, you know, become arbitrators in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, Emmanuel Gaillard's case, which is, you know, all the other people that we, Jan Paulson's case, of course. Um, what does it mean? Is that, is not this is not going to be an opportunity for us anymore so you're either going to be an investment arbitrator if you retire mm-hmm. um, or if you become an academic you know after having practicing right is, is that the option so isn't that gonna have a really uh, you know direct impact on on the number of people who are going to be qualified for the job yeah we don't even know if we're going to have investment arbitration in 15 or 20 years though <laughs> might be a, a non-issue. <laughs> uh, you there goes your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, there will always be disputes and there will always be a dispute resolution mechanism, whether it's a court or whether it's arbitration or whether it's mediation, whatever you want to call it. And you would always need adjudicators, right? Yeah. And so the issue will always be the same as who are going to be the most qualified people to sit down and settle those disputes, uh, whether it's at exit or in a court or whatever. Um, and sometimes the, the most qualified person is someone who's had a case similar to that before yes. and knows how to handle that and knows, right. you know, the safeguards to put into place to make sure that there's, you know, due process insured, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also interesting because, you know, and you mentioned it, Jewel, that in Vienna, there seems to be a consensus from state members that it is something that is wrong and it reformed. We're all talking about a code of ethics um, and states seem to be very... Um, you know, upset about the concept of double-heading. There's a lot of stats in that article, but are there stats about how many cases have been set aside uh, successfully because of abusive double-heading? 
No, I would say like zero. Yeah, yeah that's true. But again, it, it's not the uh, the bias; it's the appearance of bias. Bias. But even then, you have the criteria of appearance of bias. It is a grounds to set aside mm-hmm. an award. How many awards have been set aside successfully because of of that? Or, yeah. or I mean, there have been. It's true that there have been a lot of tribunals that have been successfully challenged and arbitrators that have been. But even then, how many? How many? So what I'm getting to is, is this a real issue today? Don't we have bigger issues to speak about than, you know, double hatting? Is that the main issue of ISDS today? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> it's definitely the biggest issue for non-arbitration people, I think. Yes. And then when I asked that question to state representatives, they looked at me and they're like, yes, it's a big issue. Right. And then, you know, I, I'm just interested in... It's the low-hanging fruit for, like... The, yeah, it is. Julie, exactly. It really is. We might as, well, might as well do this now that we're doing other things and we're reforming all of it. We might as well start with these, these small things that are relatively easy to, to regulate and, and attack okay. compared to like getting a, a, a second-level mechanism to uh, deal with appeals, for example. Exactly. And also, why is it such a non-issue for commercial arbitration then? I mean, I understand the concept that in investment arbitration you have standards like, you know, FET, MFN, expropriation, MF, you know, all of these things that keep coming up again and again. And commercial arbitration, you've got contract by contract, so there's separate issues, but really? Yeah, and it's not public. I think that's the thing. No one knows what's actually happening. No, no one knows what's actually <laughs> that's happening. That's even a bigger problem, arguably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But anyways. Well, um... Thank you guys for listening. And uh, now we can open a beer. Yes. And we want a happy fun time. <laughs> so the season's fourth, fourth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fourth happy fun time comes from uh, a loyal listener, actually who sent an interesting link uh, and suggested we, we uh, take an arbitration angle on a very common topic. The link is from the New York Times, and it uh, and the article deals with a bunch of stuff, but it takes its starting point in a letter that was sent from Rudy Giuliani's lawyers, I think, <laughs> uh, to uh, the House Committee investigating the whole Ukraine thing in the U.S., and basically, the letter is uh, the lawyer's way of saying, we won't show up, screw you, we don't respect this process. Very formal legal letter, but it's written in Comic Sans. That's is it an email? It's, yeah, no, it's an actual letter. It's actually a printed letter in oh Comic Sans. That <laughs> and that became a whole story in itself, not just the fact that Giuliani and his associates refused to show up, but also the fact that they did so. Uh, they ind- indicated their reluctance in a formal legal letter printed in Comic Sans MS. <laughs> and the article in New York Times is basically about Comic Sans and how people hate Comic Sans, including the guy who came up with it, basically as a joke in the 1990s. And then all of a sudden, it was like included in some sort of Microsoft software and spread all over the world. And now it's so common to hate it that it's almost gone full circle and people are now embracing it, like ironically, as their favorite font. So I thought we should talk about fonts and maybe also like formatting and other things relating to how to uh, structure visually 
very good podcast segment, by the way, to talk about. <laughs> it is. I mean, isn't this like our first years of our lives in a law firm is all about format, isn't it? Yes. About, you know, really? uh, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, we have to make sure everything is perfect, looks perfect. The footnotes, you know, how you, the, the way you quote. Make sure a heading know, doesn't end up at the end of the page. Yeah. <laughs> orphans. <laughs> yeah, oh orphans. Exactly. And nightmares about those. Um, yeah. So let, let me ask you, uh, both of you. You, you may have different answers. What is your default font for drafting legal documents? Well, it's it's a firm policy, but like yeah. we Times New Roman clearly for your drafting, but I have changed to Calibri for emails. Do you use Calibri for emails? Yes, so same for me. Uh, Times for drafting and then Calibri slash Arial for emails. Yeah, oh. yeah, it depends. We so. used Ariel at Mannheimer. Oh, okay. And then I was like having to now draft in a fo- And it looks so weird yes. when you're like, and I thought Calibri when I first, because a lot of people in France and England use Calibri. And I started seeing it and I was like, this looks so funny. Yeah. And then now that's what I draft, what I write emails in. You adapt. Yeah. A font, I mean, 11, size 11. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. And then there's. Yeah. Um, so is, it, is it such a given, though, that it's Times New Roman? You seem to take that for granted. That feels a little bit vanilla to me. Like it's, it's a bit boring. Well, it has to be boring in the sense that we have to follow. I mean, the first thing you do when you, when you start drafting is we get our. You know the the earlier um, drafts that we have, we have to follow a certain uh, format, right, for all our pleadings. And, and like, like Brian said, it's a firm policy. Um, so you just want to make sure everything is formatted the same way. And it, it goes much beyond the font. Actually, it's also the margins and the yeah. footnotes and everything. So it's a whole document that's pre-formatted that you just start working with. So yeah, it is boring. Boring life, Jewel. <laughs> <laughs> what do you write in, Joel? What was your PhD in? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I, I actually did. I don't know why, but we I had a Twitter exchange with a barrister friend of ours in, in London about this, and I changed part of my dissertation into Comic Sans just for the fun of it and took a photo or print screen rather, and, and upload it on Twitter. And it, it still hurts my eye, like turns the whole dissertation into something completely different when it's written in Comic Sans. But like, I gotta why t- is that? I don't know. I got a tip from someone, I can't remember who now, but some other fellow uh, person who had, who had had finished a PhD in the past. Like when you're almost done and you hate your manuscript so much and you can't catch any more typos and it's like it all just floats when you try to read it for the 19th time just try changing the font and read it again and you will read it with completely new eyes and then you will catch typos and i was like that's obviously not true and then i did it and it was true (laughs) i could catch things that did not catch when i uh read it in the same font i had drafted it in and i actually don't remember what that font was because it's the same thing as with you guys when you do submissions it was just a template that i was given that i had to write in which annoyed me in so many different ways let me see if I can actually open it up. <laughs> I mean, I've I've pulled it up for Sadia the the Comic Sans, and it's just I think what it is it's it's to um, what my banner outside of my kindergarten looked like when yes. it said "Welcome to Kindergarten." Yeah, yeah, it is really uh, the k- kids' parties is what it's for. I think it was exactly. a, it's a cartoonish font from the from the beginning when they created it. It's not supposed to be printed. It's just too irregular and childish to be used. No, it, lo- it looks amazing on um, invites. You know, I used to use it with right. the kids. Like, you know, when you write letters to your pen pals or whatever. Come to my party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Come to my party. It's from the 1990s. 
Yeah, but, you can't draft. But Brian, anymore. has it happened to you? Like I have received um, one submission from um, the other side um, that was not represented. I mean, at the time, I didn't even know actually if they were represented or not, and it was a font that I wasn't used to, and and especially the size of the font was super oh, yeah. huge. And then you're like, who are these clowns? You know, <laughs> I mean, that's the first reaction you have, even without reading the text. You're just like, yeah, they don't look sophisticated. No, exactly. Like, that's exactly what you think. You're just like mm-hmm. they. They're not in the inner circle mm-hmm, of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Why are they drafting? I, I got one letter from the the district court in Stockholm that I did my clerkship with when I uh, got the message that I was accepted, which is like a competitive thing. You know, it's a prestigious fight to get this clerkship. And I got a formal mail, a, a letter in in the letterbox, which almost never happens these days. And opened it up, and it was this like, "Welcome, you, you, you are you're admitted to this clerkship." And that letter was in Comic Sans, <laughs> like an official communication from a, a district court. In, Maybe in it was a joke. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you still believe it's yeah. true. And- <laughs> Joel yeah. actually sent the letter. It was actually Brian and I sent <laughs> the letter. <laughs> but, but, but it's, that is the instinctive reaction, though. Like, not that it's a joke, but it's, this this couldn't be formal communication. No one right. will communicate. Formally, in comic sense, that's. It. You know what also gets me is spacing. Mm-hmm. So, like people that double space or multiple space, and or two spaces after the period has been something oh that my, my refined American Excel has changed since my education. But I mean, putting two technically two spaces are supposed to be better for your eye to like stop a thought and then continue another one. That's like the philosophy behind the two space. But every time I see it, I'm like, who is this clown? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And same for justifying the text or not justifying or it just, it hurts your eyes. I think at some point. And uh, there were, for the longest time, I would actually leave the, you know, the, the thing on Microsoft Word where you can click on the paragraph so you actually see the, the formatting. Dots. Yeah, the oh, dots. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. see everything. Um, and and uh, some people are like, how can you even read the document? I'm like, no, I need this because I actually see all of, you know, the spaces, the things right. that, that go wrong. Do you still draft like that? No. I do, actually. I think now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, because I need to know how the format goes. Right. I just completely abstract in my mind. It doesn't bother me to, um, to have the indication of the spaces because if you how, if I see two stiff faces it drives me right, nuts at right. the end when you print it out it just looks bad you see yeah. It. Yeah. how much margin do you have to play around with the format that the firms give you like if, if you were to be super annoyed by a certain aspect can you just ignore or change them as you're drafting or is it like 100% the coming from above like we have to comply with the standards that have been decided I mean you can change something but the whole point is that any document coming out of the firm is supposed to look like the same as any other document coming out of the firm. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a branding thing. And also within departments, sometimes that changes I've noticed across firms. Like for example, the litigation team and the arbitration team would probably not work on the same templates. Or whatever. Right. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, what was I thinking about with, Oh, I, th- I, I have always said this. There was a guy, um, a guy who worked for at Mannheimer, and I thought he was like such a brilliant lawyer, and he is a brilliant lawyer, but he was also a brilliant word formatter, mm-hmm. and like all 
not, not a thing. Sh- not a quote, all the short, all the short commands. He didn't. He rarely used his mouth. The reason why I think that makes him a better lawyer than most people is the efficiency of editing. If you're sitting there and like fumbling with your document, you will take spend twice as long on the document because you're just fighting the format. Like for example, I remember I had this one document, and for some reason, every time I put a footnote, it went to twelve font, mm-hmm. and I was like, mm. and you wanted in ten, and so every time I would go in and reduce the font because it would mm-hmm. just bug me. And then every new one, and I insert a new footnote, and like the twelve font would pop up, and I was like. And then I, f- I went on YouTube and I was like, I need to find out how to change this so that I don't spend my whole time doing it. You don't have an it. IT person? Like a- we do, but I, yeah. I never call the IT people, but I should. Um, but that type of, I think those short commands, I don't know if you have any good short commands. I'm really bad at that. You're actually. really bad at that? Yeah, yeah tell me. No, I d- well, like, you know, the end of the document or like, you know, the end, it's like delete and page up, page down. Mm-hmm. Those oh, are actually really good. Because oh, yeah. you're working on PCs, of course, because that's what people do in offices. <laughs> of oh, course. Yeah. He's like, of course. My, my <laughs> hipster Brooklyn self. Right. <laughs> I work <laughs> on <laughs> stone tablets. <laughs> What's page up and page down? It's, oh, yeah. not, oh, of course. It's still 1994 in London law firm world. So I forgot about that. <laughs> exactly. Or like control shift and like doing your yes. arrow will like highlight words yes, and like yes. jump sentences or jump lines like that stuff that i think is really really helpful um then there's or like even putting a footnote is like you can it's like control shift f that brings a footnote down instead of like right clicking and people when i see someone who does that yeah. highlight right click copy and then go somewhere and right click paste i'm just like <gasps> I, I was like you need to go to therapy <laughs> And never have children because you clearly don't know how to deal with things. No, but it's always, it's, it's to your point. I, I, there should be a wizard like that in the team. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, I think for us, uh, I'm sure it's the same for you, Brian, but even in across different firms I've worked in, when we're getting closer and closer to the finding date, at some point there is this wizard person mm-hmm. who has the control of the document yeah. who snaps if you touch it, the document because everyone messes it up at some point. Oh, you're yeah. adding things, uh, you're adding footnotes. Corrupting you're, the file. Yeah, corrupting the files <laughs> I used to work with. I'm not going to name that person, uh, of course, because I'll get in trouble. But I used to work with a partner. He would look at, so I said it, so he already, but it, like I would, he would, I would send him documents and he would look at it at the last minute of course. And then he would mess up the entire document. So not only had you to look into it to make sure it made sense, but also just to, you know, clean it up all the time. And he would do that last minute, you know, literally when you were about to file. Oh, I just need to add this thought. Oh, my goodness. You're like dictated to me because I don't want to send (laughs) it. And so there needs to be this wizard who's like, no, you send me something and I will include it because otherwise. So um, we have a really good, at at Winston, actually, they have document services. So you send a document mm -hmm, and you send them what, how you want it formatted like a text. Oh, hallelujah and then because they're in the u.s you like wake up in the morning oh, and yes, you have like a so newly amazing. formatted document and it's just like the best thing about working oh in. it's like fresh coffee the smell of fresh coffee <laughs> it's like <laughs> fresh sheets yeah it's actually like freshly <laughs> formatted document exactly here's your clean document yeah, yeah. we are nerds uh, yes. no but i think i think there needs to be i like i have advocated this all the time there needs to be like a word processing like mm-hmm. lecture monthly on how to do this because no one knows i have a very basic sense of it actually jan who's our editor of the podcast he has like created a little niche as the tech guy in his firm he's told me that like 
they rely on him on so many things because if something breaks, if a document, you know, mm-hmm. the document disappears, like to have a lawyer who knows how to work a computer, it's just like a dream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I can short command a couple of things and it's like, it just puts you in a, in a different league. It does. It, does. it creates a, <laughs> but you have to be careful with that though, right? Because if you're the good, the, the guy who knows everything, then everyone oh. will come up with their problems. With the worst. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Most yeah. Exactly. expensive IT guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and IT people are notoriously known for being, you know, not available when you need them the most. So you need yeah. to make well, sure. Yeah, well, because your you document's have- like corrupted at like, 1159. Exactly. <laughs> so that's why you need to have, you know, the wizard. you need to have the wizard or you need to have someone who's on your, on WhatsApp that you can call whenever. Right. It's like your emergency IT guy. True. We should interview an IT person on this podcast. We should. One day I called you, that's a funny story. I called the IT and you know how they put you on hold sometimes, yeah. right? And then he took me off hold and he was like, you know what? You're the first person who hasn't insulted me while I put you on hold. Because a lot of people don't know is like when we put you on hold, we hear what you say. Oh, no. <laughs> and he was like, you're so nice. You haven't insulted me. You haven't said I'm useless. Like, he's like, <laughs> I felt so bad with the guy. Oh, my yeah. God. That is so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they give us a lip back. They're like, unplug your computer and plug it in again. I'm like, Ugh. shake it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's what we call a Norwegian solution in Sweden, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah, plug it up, plug it in. Like, yes, the stupid. I Try love that. Every area of the world has their like scapegoat. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, should we uh, control Alt Delete our way out of this segment? Well done, Taskmaster. Um, we follow us uh, at the ARP station on Twitter. Joel will respond to you within seconds because he's obsessed. Or email us at the arbitration I'm obsessed. station. Let me put that on the record, <laughs> yeah. okay? I am super obsessed with the arbitration station, super excited <laughs> to be part of this adventure. So send us an email and comments if you have anything to say. Absolutely. Jewel, Brian, and I will respond immediately. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> uh, all right. Over and out. Bye.